Three boys are in a schoolyard bragging about their fathers. And the first boy says, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a poem, and they give him $50. The second boy says, that's nothing. He said, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a song, and they give him $100. The third boy, who we'll call Ethan, says, I got you both beat. He said, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon, and it takes eight people to collect all the money. Amen? How about this one? Two men are marooned on an island. Uh, They're pacing back and forth, worried about, scared that they're uh, never going to be rescued. No one's ever going to find them. And the first man said to the second man, he said, aren't you afraid we're going to die out here? And he said, no, not at all. He said, I make $100,000 a week. I tithe faithfully to my church. My pastor will find us and rescue us. Well, hopefully that humor breaks the tension of talking about Uh, money in church and the reason we're going to talk about money this morning is because that is the subject at hand in James chapter 5 if you want to turn there with me uh, the first part of James chapter 5 and the reason we're teaching through the first part of James chapter 5 is because last week we finished up James chapter 4 and here's a little news flash of the next message in James we're going to preach in the middle of James chapter 5 and so our uh, preaching formula is right on the cusp of rocket science of how we approach things. We often uh, teach through books of the Bible, and in doing so, uh, you teach the challenging verses, you teach the comforting verses, and you teach everything in between. It gives a balanced spiritual diet as you uh, teach the whole counsel of God's Word, so that's why we do that. But there's a side benefit as well, that when you come upon, when you're teaching through a book of the Bible, a subject that people would rather you avoid, a subject like money, no one can question your motives. And the reason we're teaching that is because that's what's here in the text in James chapter 5. And so we're teaching this not because we're struggling, uh, quite the contrary actually, because that's the subject at hand here in James chapter 5. And in James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6, he's going to offer some warnings about the unique temptations connected to money. And so let's pick up the text here in James chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. He says, come now, Uh, You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Is that not a comforting truth? You've laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All throughout this series, as we've been teaching verse by verse uh, through the book of James, it really has been a connected series of tests. Where he's leaning in and saying, hey, there's a, there's a gap between what you say you believe and the actual life that you're living. And he's speaking into those gaps, trying to get us to close that gap about the genuineness of our faith. And what I'll tell you this is in two decades of pastoring, uh, I don't know if there's an area of life where we're more comfortable to live disconnected between the life that we're actually living and the life we say we believe in the area of money. And so to simply put... There's a tremendous amount of willingness to look at money and how we view it as a not as a spiritual issue at all. That somehow that's our business life or our 
planning, but, but our spiritual life, and those things are completely disconnected truths. Well, let me ask you a, a little question as a test here. If I ask you this morning, hey, how are you doing spiritually? And you begin to take inventory of your own spiritual life, would the subject of money even come up in anyone's thoughts when you're taking spiritual inventory? Uh, my guess is probably not because we live disconnected in those truths. We may think about our prayer life. We may think about how we're enduring trials. We may think about how we're living as a Christian parent or a Christian employee or a Christian spouse. We may think about uh, putting off doing good that we talked about last week. But if I had to guess, if I actually went around and said, hey, how's your spiritual life going? No one in those thoughts of self-examination would have money creep up to the top when they're taking spiritual inventory, which shows us we've become disconnected. That somehow our business life and our spiritual life are two separate entities. And that's exactly what he's leaning into here in James chapter 5. Now, when he's leaning in, uh, in these verses, he's not leaning into the idea of wealth itself. Uh, very early in scripture, we see the account of the life of Abraham. Many of the Old Testament saints were incredibly wealthy. And God used them to further his kingdom agenda, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God never condemns them for the wealth. God actually uses it as a vehicle to display his glory. In the New Testament, uh, in the epistles, there is no condemnation to owning things. There's not even a condemnation about making a profit. It's the misuse of wealth that James is leaning into here specifically. And specifically, he's addressing those who were using their wealth for selfish purposes and persecuting or exploiting the poor in the process. That's what he's leaning into uh, this morning. And make no mistake, he's more than a little upset at these people. Go back into verse 1 and listen to this language. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Like when I read that, if James were sitting here, I would just ask him, hey, you mad, bro? And the answer is, yes, he is. But it is the righteous indignation of a prophet speaking into injustice and the dangers of wealth. Now, here's what I've learned over 21 years. Sometimes we preach passages about this uh, and talk about the, the warnings associated with wealth. Sometimes there's a temptation to disassociate ourselves from these truths. Because when we think of wealth, what do we think? We think, well, listen, I'm not wealthy, right? Like, I, I know some people who are, but I'm not one of them. And so let me just remind you, if you own a car, even if it's a hoopty, all right, you're in the top 10% of wealth in the world economy. And so if you are a citizen of this country, then by the world standards, you are incredibly wealthy. And that's nothing to feel guilty about, but it is a responsibility to steward well when it comes to this issue of wealth. And so... In this passage, uh, he basically lays out three warnings about wealth that apply to all of us uh, in the room this morning. So the first truth I want you to see this morning is simply this. Don't downplay the power of wealth. There's a little debate when you study through commentaries about this section of Scripture, James 5, 1 through 6. And, and the debate starts right off in verse 1 about who he's actually addressing. Some people say, oh, he's addressing non-Christians. Those who are, uh, don't enter the church because they already have their God. Their God just happens 
to be their wealth, and so they would argue that he's addressing those outside the church. Others have argued, so no, 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 the whole context of the book of James is he's speaking to professing Christians, and so to move outside the church or to move outside the context of the entire book of James, that he's speaking to Christians. But there's a third category, and I would hold to this view, as simply as this. It's people who are in the church, participating in the fellowship of the body of Christ, who would profess to be believers, but in fact, their hearts are so blinded by wealth that they're actually self-deceived. In James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, this is, uh, without a doubt, the most blistering verses in the entire epistle of the book of James. And in verse 7, he makes a transitional statement. In verse 7, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, he says, Brothers... And so the reason there's a change of titles because there's a change of audience. So in verses 1 through 6, he's speaking to those in the church. This is an epistle to the church, but he doesn't call them brothers. Why? Because their hearts have been self-deceived about the power of wealth. It has captured their hearts. And so he's warning about that. And this is not an isolated warning. Like there's a temptation to read this and the blistering words here in these uh, first six verses and to think that somehow James just got up on the wrong side of the bed. That somehow James started to write before he could hit up Starbucks, right? He's just a little grumpy. That's why he's writing like this. But that would be true, but these aren't isolated statements. Uh, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, what it says. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith, and listen to this, have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Did you hear that last part? People who've loved to be money, they've craved after money, when they, when they got it, they have pierced themselves with many sorrows. That, that's basically the life verse for all of those documentaries. Have you ever seen those uh, documentaries, How the Lottery Ruined My Life? Right? And, and if you're like me, uh, I see those documentaries, I hear the warnings in this passage, and what I'm thinking is this, God, I promise you can trust me. Amen? Like, Lord, pour it on me and watch how faithful I am. I'll just give you more money you give me, the more glory that I'll give you. And I'm tempted to be deceived by the warnings in, in these passages and think, hey, I would not be captured by these warnings from wealth that he's giving in the New Testament here and in other places. But it's a side note, if you won the $2 billion lottery this week, uh, we will cash your tithe check, all right? I just want to make that clear. The devil's had that money long enough, Amen. And here's what we think. Man, a, a little money, it'd solve a lot of practical problems, right? I don't know if you're aware of this. Groceries are expensive right now. Are you aware of that? Tasha uh, sent me a text and she said, hey, I'm so sorry. I went over the grocery budget by $30 or $40. And, and so here's the normal amount we spend. So it's $30 or $40 more. And so it's this amount. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I open up, and there's two bags on the porch. It felt like there were two bags, Right? <laughs> It's crazy. And so what we think is this, man, if, if God would just you know, open the floodgates a little bit, Lord, you own the cat on a thousand hills. If you just kill one and sell it, I'd be grateful. But what he's saying and leaning into 
is this. He's saying, hey, it may solve some practical problems in the short term. But what he's saying is it also can create some incredibly challenging spiritual problems once it comes into our life. So James is not condemning people who have money. He's condemning people who love money. Let me show you this is not about how much money you have. You can be wealthy and your heart can be captured by money and you can think, hey, just the next dollar that I make will be the one that finally satisfies my heart. They asked Henry Ford one time, they said, how much more money do you need? And his response was, just one more dollar. And so you can be, have lots of money and your heart's captured by it. Listen, you can be poor and think, if I had money, then finally I'd have identity. Finally, I'd have security. And your heart's might capture by it as well. So rich or poor, it's not about having money. It's when money has you is what he's leaning into, the power of wealth. And so do not downplay the spiritual dimension, the power to be tempted by wealth. It is literally the source of self-deception to, to the people he's speaking to in the church in verses 1 through 6. And so don't, don't downplay that. All over the Bible there's warnings about the spiritual dimension of money, how it can quickly capture our hearts. And so one of the things we've tried to teach over and over is that habits are nothing more than the overflow of heart affections. And it's against that truth that the warning of verse 1 leads us into the counsel of verses 2 and 3 where he says this, don't dismiss the habit of hoarding. John Calvin famously said this. He said, our hearts, they are idol-making factories. And our hearts are wicked and deceitful. And so because that's true, they're constantly making idols. And because our hearts are deceitful, we're not even aware that, that idol production has started to ramp up in our hearts. We're totally deceived by that and I agree with Tim Keller and here's what Keller said he said of all the idols that can capture our hearts one of the most deceptive ones is the idol of greed listen to what Keller says he said the Bible talks more about greed than it does about sexual morality but yet no one thinks they're guilty of it and I thought about that quote this week and I thought in 21 years of pastoring there has yet to be a single instance where anyone says, hey, can I talk to you? I've got to get something off my chest. And they've sat down across from me and they said, my heart, I just want to confess the sin of greed. Not one time in 21 years, I've had lots of people confess all kinds of other sins, but not one time in 21 years has someone ever said, the sin of greed has overtaken my life. And so Keller's statement is true. The Bible talks about it more than it talks about sexual morality, but nobody thinks they're actually guilty of that issue of the heart. And so if the habits reveal the heart, and they do, then the heart that loves money, the warnings there in verse 1 in 1 Timothy 6, is going to play out in the hoarding it up in verses 2 and 3 uh, that he talks about. So uh, let me use the language from uh, we used a couple weeks ago. So the, the aspect of the behavior of hoarding it up, it's the check engine light on the dash. What he's saying is, hey, if you find yourself hoarding it up, uh, it's the check engine light that something is going on in your heart connected to this issue of wealth and all the warnings. Now, in James's time, there were uh, three main indicators of wealth, and people try to hoard these things up and show everybody else all the wealth they had accumulated. First off, uh, they would go through this. Look at verses 2 and 3. He would say, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion 
will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Now, what are the last days? The last days started at the ascension of Jesus and they'll culminate at his return. So uh, we are living in the last days uh, time clock here. And so were they. Jesus had already ascended and he said, hey, one of the ways that we try to show off our wealth and hoard it up, it's basically three categories. They all start with G because James was a preacher, right? He said, one is your uh, garments. He said, your garments. Uh, In their culture, if you had a change of clothes, you were considered incredibly wealthy. Did you hear that, ladies? Listen, what, what does application look like? Go out and home and throw every pair of shoes you have except that one that you need. Amen? They would hoard up garments. Get a change of clothes. They would hoard up grain. Look at all this food that we have stored. And the third thing, they, they'd hoard up gold and precious metals. And so he's leaning in and says, hey, I, I know what you're doing. I know exactly what's, what's going on here. And he's leaning into them. And basically what he's saying is, when judgment comes, when Christ returns, none of these things will have any value in eternity. As a matter of fact, what good was all the gold and silver they could accumulate when in A.D. 70, Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem and their currency at that point they've been hoarding up became totally worthless. It had no value anymore. And we'd laugh at that foolishness. They're hoarding up currency that when they get destroyed by Rome has, has no value. Past that point, they're hoarding up. Can I, can I just lean in a little bit this, this morning? And that was rhetorical. How is that any different than you and I hoarding up money knowing that it has little value in eternity? I shared this excerpt with you a few months ago, but it's literally the best illustration of this reality that I've ever seen. So I'm going to share it again and give credit. Randy Alcorn, uh, in his book, The Treasure Principle, talks about this idea of hoarding up earthly treasure, knowing that one day it will have no value in eternity, but behaving as if it will. Listen to this excerpt from his book. He says, uh, imagine that you're alive at the end of the Civil War and you've been living in the South, but, but you're a northerner. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose for a a fact that you know the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money if you're smart? He says there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Right? That makes sense. And then he makes this point. He says as a Christian... You have inside knowledge of a worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return and earth's currency will become worthless. To accumulate vast earthly treasures that you can't possibly hold on to for long is the equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money even though you know it's about to become worthless. Now, remember Keller's statement? Nobody thinks they're guilty of this. And so how do we know if we really believe this truth, this warning about hoarding? How do we know if we're taking it to heart? And and here's where Christians should live counter-cultural to the world's values. Here's how we know that we've uh, embraced this truth. We don't hoard it up. We send it ahead. 
Nothing wrong with enjoying the good gifts the Bible gives us from God. The Bible says, James 1.17. The Bible says if you don't take care of your family, then you're worse than an unbeliever. So nothing wrong with any of those things. But the distinction is this. That for a follower of Jesus Christ, we get more joy in investing money in heaven than we do hoarding money up on earth. That the thought of sending it ahead is what brings the greatest joy to my hearts. Now let me address two practical questions because some of you are right now thinking about your bank account. You're thinking, hey, I'm doing good at not hoarding. Amen? (laughs) Right? Like I got some IOUs in there. I'm good. I'm generous. Whether I want to be or not, I'm generous. Not hoarding anything up. And how do we wrestle with all the Bible's wisdom about saving? Right? So here's two uh, practical questions out of these truths. We move on to the last principle. Uh, so how do we distinguish in the wisdom in saving and the folly in hoarding? Right? Because those are two contrasting truths. The Bible talks about saving over and over. The Bible says steady plotting leads to prosperity. So all these Verses in the book of Proverbs about saving, the wisdom of saving. Proverbs chapter 6, consider the ant in her ways. You know, she knows that a hard winter is coming, so she stores up all this. So all these condemnations or, or commendations about saving. And so what's the difference between saving and hoarding? So if you're listening, say amen. The difference is not the action, it's the motive in doing so. Saving is an act of faith. It's saying that God has revealed this to be a wise practice and by faith, I'm going to be obedient to his counsel because by faith, I believe God when he says that steady plotting leads to prosperity. It's an act of faith. Hoarding is the absence of faith. Hoarding sees me, not God, as the ultimate source of my provision. Hoarding says, I cannot trust God to meet my needs, so I'm going to take extreme measures. Hoarding denies the truth that says that our Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and He loves to give good gifts to His children, and I deny those things, and so I hoard it up. And so often there's not a difference in the habit, but the motive behind those things could not be more radical. Saving is an act of faith. Hoarding is the absence of faith in the character of God. So here's the second practical question. How do we avoid being one of those people who never admits to greed, even though the Bible talks about it all the time? And I have a very clear answer, and let me just put this out there. You're not going to like it, all right? Giving is the antidote to greed. If you're worried, like, oh, I don't want to be that person who's self-deceived and who thinks they're not greedy, but I actually am. Listen, if you're worried about becoming that person, if you're worried about hoarding it up, it's real simple, give it away. Hoarders live with closed fists, believing God will never make any more provision, but givers live with open hands. Not only are they opposite actions, but they move our hearts in different directions. Hoarding moves my heart towards me and my resources and my planning and my provision and my you know, business acumen and my efforts and all those things. But giving moves my heart toward the Father and His kingdom 
agenda. Now, if I went around this morning and I just said, hey, raise your hand if you want to be more like Jesus. If you want Jesus to capture the affections of your heart. I'm assuming everybody's hand would go up in this room this morning. I'm assuming that's why you got here, right? Got dressed, combed your hair. Some of you, most of you, yelled at your kids on the way here, right? Because you wanted your heart to be more in line with the heart of Jesus. But be careful what you wish for. Because here's what the Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse 34. It's repeated in other places in the gospel and parallel passages. Listen to this verse. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, this, this couldn't be more clear. And I, and I want you to hear what that verse is saying. Your heart follows your money, not the other way around. That's what that verse is teaching. Wherever your treasures, wherever you put your money, there your heart will be future. It's being led. There your heart will be also. Your heart follows your money. So let me just prove this really quick, all right? So if you gave to a missions organization in the country of Albania, for example, right? And never in your life have you thought about Albania. You've never prayed for Albania. You've never thought about the missions work going on. You've never inquired how many believers in Albania. What's the dominant religion in Albania. But all of a sudden, you gave and invested some money into a missionary doing work in Albania. And across your news feed, there is a story about Albania. Guess what? You're going to take interest. Why? Because your heart follows your money. If the stock market, you invested in XYZ, and all of a sudden there's some news about XYZ, I'm going to start reading up on whatever that article is. Because this verse is clear, your heart follows your money. So, so here, here's the question that, that everybody should wrestle with when it comes to this idea of giving. And the, here's the question, right? Is our money leading our hearts to King Jesus and His kingdom? Does our money reflect the actual stated belief that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. That's the question all of us should be wrestling with. Because if I want my heart to be drawn to the kingdom agenda of Jesus Christ and eternal things, then one of the ways that happens according to this passage is that I give towards those things and my heart follows my giving. That's the question we should all be wrestling with. If my money is leading my heart, and it is according to the Bible, here's the question. Where is my money taking my heart? That's the right question when it comes to giving. You know the question I've had to entertain over the years? Well, pastor, I've been studying the Bible, and I don't think tithing's in the New Testament. I'd like to talk to you about that. I think that was under the law, and that's, you know, Old Covenant, and, and we're under grace. And so I, I don't think, I, you know, all the, you know, do I have to give 10%? Actually, the Old Testament, are giving 23%. Don't bring that up. But, you know, what, a, what about all this? And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you haven't neglected the tithe. How do I wrestle with all that? Listen, 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 all right? When people ask me about percentages when it comes to giving, everybody look up here. What they're really asking me is this. How little can I give and keep God happy? That's what they're asking. Do you know what the mature Christian asks with their heart totally abandoned to Jesus Christ? 
You know what they say, what they ask? Lord, it's all yours. How much do you want me to keep? That's the question we should be asking, not percentages and covenants and all those kinds of things. And so we guard our hearts from the danger of money by breaking through the temptation to hoard it up. How? By giving it away. Total abandonment in our hearts to Jesus Christ is what that looks like. And we do so with progressive sanctification. What does that mean? If you're a non-giver, an occasional giver, become a consistent giver. If you're a consistent giver, become a tither. If you're a tither, become an extravagant giver. He says, Lord, it's all yours. How much do you want me to keep? Total abandonment. So listen, start wherever you are. And start giving, investing some in eternity. You don't have to start at 10%. I know, listen, I've studied this out, all the arguments about it. Let me ask you a question. If you came to me and said, hey, I've, I've never prayed before. And I said, oh, let me give you some advice. Get up tomorrow at 4 and spend the first two hours of your day in prayer, which is what I do. Write that down, all right? Not true. Hard for me to get up early. Tasha doesn't, she snores a lot, and so it's hard to get sleep, and so I just, I overshared there. But If you told me, said, hey, I've, I've never really read the Bible. And I said, oh, read it through this weekend. But what it comes to giving, we say, I, I, I'm not a giver. I don't give consistently. I don't, I've never been taught. I don't understand that. Or I've been taught that and I wrestle with that. And I said, well, start with 10, 12%. You'd be crushed under the weight of that. And so just approach with progressive sanctification and say, Lord, I'm moving towards obedience. I'm going to start investing some of my money in eternity because I know that it will lead my heart to where you want it to be. And so be careful about hoarding it up. And then lastly, quickly, the third warning here when it comes to money, be careful how you treat people. You ever met people who are kind and easy to get along with and those things, but all of a sudden you put a little money in the equation and all of a sudden things get south real quick? Here's another opportunity to declare our values are not the same as the world's values. The world loves money and uses people, and the Christian should love people and use money to further the Lord's work. It's totally the opposite. Let me quote Tim Keller again. He said, the Romans gave everyone their body and no one their money. And Christians in the early church gave no one their body and everyone their money. They blessed people with money instead of mistreating people over money. And they were mostly impoverished Jewish converts to Christianity. You know the most generous state in the United States per capita giving? It's the state of Mississippi. You know what also is interesting about the state of Mississippi? It's also the most impoverished state in the United States. You know the most generous people I've ever been around in my life have been on the mission field in Guatemala. Most generous people some of you have ever encountered is on the mission field in Mexico. They have nothing, but everything they have is yours. In contrast that to the warning that James is giving, he says, hey, one of the ways that money grips our hearts is we start treating people differently over money. And so what does he say? Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So two ways we mistreat money when we're motivated by greedy self-indulgence. Number one, we cheat others. Verse 4, he said, hey, these people, and in biblical times, they would, there were no contracts, there was no grit. You just went out and the uh, guy would come and he'd say, hey, I, I need some people to work in the fields and and you'd work all day, at the end of the day, he would pay you, but there was no laws to stop him from saying, you know what, you worked all day, I don't like how your work was performed, and so I'm not going to pay you. And in James chapter 4, he says, the reason that you won't do that and will cheat honest workers is because the motive of your heart is self-indulgence. Verse 5. This is the person who charges you too much or pays you too little for a service because they know that you're desperate for the money. This is the person who sells a used car and doesn't tell you about major repairs. This is the person who cheats on their taxes. And if we do all those things, then we're no different than the wicked employer that James is railing against. And so some people would never hurt another person literally, but when it comes to the potential of making a buck at their expense, they'll get as close to the line as they can of cheating someone. These are the type of people when the cashier or salesman makes a mistake and they get undercharged or give them too much change back, they walk away and say, God's favor's on me. It's not. You're a thief, right? And so he's leaning into that. And why would we avoid that? Because here's the reality. Because you should never put a price tag on your integrity. Because when it's forfeited and everyone knows it, you would spend everything you have to get it back. Proverbs says this, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. So, number one, you're cheating others. Wealth has captured your heart because you're cheating other people to get more of it. And number six, you're exploiting others. Uh, Let me just hit this quickly. Verse six, he says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Almost every commentator says this wasn't literal murder. What he's describing is the culture of wealthy people there. Uh, They were using the judicial system to pay off judges and, and all kinds of people to exploit those who had no financial resources to defend themselves in the, in the court of appeals or the justice system uh, at that time. And so what he's saying is you're exploiting people with your financial resources so that you might be more self-indulgent with money or all kinds of things filled in the blank. Aren't you glad that here in our modern times, people no longer use money to manipulate other people for their selfish gain? Aren't you glad that we've moved so far beyond that? I never cease to be amazed at parents who commit emotional murder with their adult children by using money to control them. Listen, if you're here and you're doing that in the service, you should get saved. Because you're doing exactly what he's saying here. you got some leverage and you've got some money that you're using for that leverage. Why? To end what you're doing is leveraging the situation and manipulating the other person who does not have the resources that you have to need. Why? For your own self-indulgence. That's exactly what he's preaching against here in verse 6. And the motive of all of that, verse 5 makes it clear, it's self-indulgence. Somehow I'm willing to exploit you and leverage you and pressure you and manipulate you because it benefits me. What's he saying? He says, if you're a follower of Christ, 
We don't live like that. We don't live like that. Money is not evil. It is amoral. It is ink on paper. You ever heard anybody say money changes people? It doesn't. Money doesn't change our hearts. Only the gospel can change our hearts. Money doesn't change our hearts. Money reveals our hearts. If I'm generous, I get a bunch of money. Guess what? I'm even more generous. If I'm greedy and all of a sudden I get some money, guess what? I'm even more greedy. Money doesn't change our hearts. It reveals our hearts. It's not sinful, but what he's warning here is it can be dangerous. And so the good news of the gospel, though, is this. Is that Jesus is not just good for getting us out of hell in the future one day. That Jesus can reorient the affections of our hearts in the here and now. And so the best precaution or war- against the warnings about wealth is this. Is to place your heart and your money in his generous and faithful hands. Would you bow your head this morning? Your head bowed this morning. I just want to share two things with you in light of what we've talked today. Number one, I want you to hear this clearly, clearly this morning. Jesus doesn't want or need your money. He's not up in heaven wringing his hands over inflation. What Jesus desperately wants is your heart. And so if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, would you right now, right in your seat, pray, confess your sins, declare that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins, was buried and rose the third day. Would you repent or turn from those sins and self-righteousness? And would you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins today? Would you do that today? Would you pray and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? For those of you who've been a Christian a long time, let me ask you a question this morning. Does the way that you handle money reflect a genuine belief in heaven and hell? That's not a question about percentages. That's not a question. Does the way that you handle and view money Reflect a genuine belief about heaven and hell. And if the answer is no this morning, would you just confess that? And would you just pray and, and ask the Lord to give you the grace to empower you to live by faith in this area that's so easy to live by sight? And here's the good news. If you'll confess that and ask for his grace, he provides it. He offers us grace upon grace is what the Bible says. Father, I'm so grateful that yet once again, you've given us in your word wisdom that is so countercultural to the world's wisdom when it comes to money and possessions and wealth. And Lord, it's nothing wrong with having things, enjoying things, blessing people with things, and providing for our family with these things. But God, let us all be guarded that those things never capture our hearts. May Jesus Christ alone capture the deepest affections of our hearts. And if that's true, then all the behavior about money and everything else will take care of it. And so, Lord, 
set our affections on Jesus this morning. Empower us to obey what we could not obey and what we would not obey apart from Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.